Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight it is August 16th of 2012, and our guest tonight is Judge Jim Gray. He is the Libertarian Vice Presidential Candidate uh, in the coming election. And uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. You can buy it from Amazon. Our guest is Judge Jim Gray. As I said, he's the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. He is also the author of a book about how the drug war has failed. Um, It is called Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed. A Judicial Indictment of the War on Drugs. He's right here with us. We're going to bring him on. Uh, Judge Gray, how are you doing this evening? Well, Kenneth, just fine. I've been looking forward to being with you, and, and thanks for the opportunity. Well, it's great to have you here. Can you give us a little historical perspective of the war on drugs, how this came about? Oh, goodness. Uh, yes, basically, Kenneth, uh, any investigation will show that it's the war on drugs has its roots in racism, on ignorance, and uh, basically funding. Uh, the first drug laws that I'm aware of in our country were in the 1880s, 1890s in San Francisco against the opium dens. Uh, people basically didn't care one way or the other about the Chinese, but they were concerned that the Chinese would lure white women into their dens for depravity. Uh, the same thing happened with regard to the Harrison Narcotics Act back in 1913, 1914, uh, we were concerned about uh, black men uh, getting on cocaine and luring American women into depravity. Certainly in 1933, the Marijuana Tax Act, it was those Mexicans, you know, we don't care about them. Actually, Congress had no concept that they were prohibiting hemp, which they never would have done had they known that her- marijuana was really hemp. But uh, that was for that reason. And it's continued to this day. Uh, the biggest villain in this thing, really, other than Richard Anslinger, who kind of put it together, was Richard Nixon. Uh, It's shown from his own Attorney General Kleindienst that in the early 1970s, they realized that drug treatment really did work, but they decided to go with drug prohibition and incarceration instead because of the enormous political benefits that they anticipated getting from this, fighting a war where there really wasn't anybody that could fight back and showing how tough they were. And Kleindienst thereafter was quoted as saying that, boy, the the benefits we got politically were beyond our belief, and they're just continuing today. That that Elected officials keep talking tough with regard to the war on drugs, not smart, just tough, because it gets them elected. And it's up to us, you know, you and the media and our listeners and, and any other good people, just to step up and say, wait a minute, you know, of the, of the drug problems that we have, drug-related problems, yeah, about 10% are drug-related, and I'm not minimizing them, and I know you don't either. And some of these drugs can certainly be addictive and be harmful, 
certainly including alcohol, which is my drug of choice. But 90% of the problems are drug money problems, are drug prohibition problems, those we can and must deal with. And that when we finally came to our senses and repealed alcohol prohibition, uh, we, we lost so many problems that, that certainly the Al Capones of this world and the drug money or the alcohol money that went into it and the violence and the corruption and the disrespect for law and also the impurities. You know, we had huge problems of what I call bathtub gin. You know, you get a bad batch and it would attack your nervous system, killed some people, put others into comas. All those problems went away. So that we just need to focus on what works. And what works is education, treatment, uh, responsibility, and economic incentives. And right now, all of those are pretty much on their head. We, we need to change away from drug prohibition, which I call the biggest failed policy in the history of our country, second only to slavery. Now, I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but you give me some time, and I can, I can certainly show that it's true. Now, you mentioned alcohol prohibition, and I want to ask you a question about that, because when we did alcohol prohibition, we passed a constitutional amendment, but we never passed any constitutional amendments about drug prohibition. Is there a constitutional problem with our drug laws? Well, Kenneth, there really is. Uh, but the, the people in the legislature, in the Congress, were really smart or slick or sly, depending on what you want to say, that when you went to the Harrison Act, it was actually a tax act, that it didn't prohibit narcotics. It just put on an intentionally high, cumbersome tax on it. Same thing with marijuana in the 30s. It was the Marijuana Tax Act. So if somebody sold some marijuana, that wasn't itself illegal, but if you sell $5 worth of marijuana and put a $20 tax on it, and then people don't pay the tax and then you prosecute them. So it was only in the 1970s when Nixon's administration passed the Controlled Substances Act that for the first time, and they just warned people out by that time, and they pretty much expected, accepted it. By that time, it was the first time that they were really prohibited. Before that, it was a tax act. It's you know pretty sly, and of course, it was very successful, but that's the background on it. And that really does go against the Tenth Amendment, doesn't it? Oh, my goodness. You know, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments really do still exist. Uh, that those powers not delegated expressly by the Constitution are left to the people, are left to the states. And uh, why the Supreme Court and other court jurisdictions have ignored the Ninth and Tenth Amendments is a crying shame. Uh, but we're bringing them back. And, and, of course, Governor Gary Johnson, who I have called the most qualified person to be President of the United States that I know of, former two-term governor of New Mexico, uh, and he is our presidential candidate, uh, he will bring back the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, and I assure you that I'll be, uh, be doing the same thing. They, they're still in the Constitution Bill of Rights last time I looked, and they must be enforced, uh, and we're going to bring those things back. Well, I would like to see some lawyer that had the guts to bring a class action suit against the U.S. government for every drug offender that's been imprisoned illegally under unconstitutional laws. Well, Kenneth, it, it, it's, it's certainly that. But the hypocrisy is just so heavily laden. You know, the last three presidents we've had, uh, certainly Mr. Obama, I read his book. He has acknowledged while he was at community organizing in Chicago that he used marijuana on a pretty regular basis. And he even said he used cocaine a few times. And George W. Bush acknowledged pretty much that he had used cocaine. And while he was the governor of, of Texas, actually signed legislation mandating 
for Texas that anybody that uses cocaine must go to jail a minimum of 180 days. Now, wait a minute. For the, doing the same thing that he had done, if you were here now, Mr. Obama, Mr. Bush, would it have helped your careers to have been arrested and convicted? And, and of course, the answer is no. It was a waste. It's just a tragedy that we're inflicting upon people. We're ruining people's lives. We're separating parents from their children. We're raising children to follow the footsteps of their parents to go into jails and prisons. Uh, medically, it's, it's caused all kinds of harm because we're making people automatic criminals, pushing them farther away from the medical professionals that can help them instead of bringing them closer to them. Uh, you remember, of course, you remember President Clinton. You know, did you really inhale? You know, becomes a national joke. You know, it shouldn't be a joke. Even Michael Phelps, you know, has acknowledged using marijuana without any harm whatsoever until he was caught. Then the harm started. I mean, come on, guys. Let's hold people accountable for what they do, but not what they put into their bodies. That just doesn't work. And, and by the way, you know, it makes as much sense to me to put this gifted actor Robert Downey Jr. in jail for his heroin problem, and I applaud him. He's doing pretty well, but he'll always have that craving. That makes as much sense to put him in jail for that as it would have Betty Ford, for example, in jail for her alcohol problem. You know, it's the same thing. It's a medical issue. Bring them closer to medical professionals that can help them instead of labeling them automatic criminals and pushing them farther away. But if Robert Downey Jr., Betty Ford, you or I, Kenneth, drive a motor vehicle while impaired by, you name it, you know, alcohol, which is my drug of choice, or marijuana, methamphetamines, that's a crime. What's the difference? Well, now by their actions, they're putting our safety at risk. Legitimate criminal justice issue. But otherwise, leave them alone, and that's what we're going to do. Well, I absolutely agree with that. Um, you mentioned marijuana, and you know, there's there's quite a bit of research uh, lately. We did a show on this with Amanda Ryman uh, last year. Um, me medical marijuana can be a good treatment for drug addiction and for alcohol addiction, and a lot of people can get off of uh, really bad uh, drug or alcohol problems by switching to medical marijuana. Well, I believe that's true. I, now we're out of my field. I'm not a medical doctor. I've never used marijuana or any other illicit drug for that reason, but I've certainly spoken to so many people that have. I, I've spoken just the other day in, in a medical marijuana dispensary. Some young man that had done real violence to his leg, and he had a pin in his leg, and his, his medical doctor had him so filled with Vicodin he was in a haze and could barely function, and now he's weaned himself off the Vicodin and the other narcotic drugs with medical marijuana and so you know come on what's better he can live a normal life now he says that that he's can really be helpful to him spoken to probably 30 people in that same condition or if you have aids or if you're going through chemotherapy and you even think marijuana gives you more of an appetite for heaven's sake let him do it but i tell you that if we elect either um, governor romney or re-elect president obama there aren't going to be any medical marijuana dispensaries in our country within two years. The only thing that we can do for medical marijuana dispensaries to survive is to vote for Governor Gary Johnson for president. That's a huge reason to do it. There are many, many more. Now, what has been happening with the uh, medical marijuana dispensaries in California and elsewhere, too? I've, I've seen some articles about California particularly. Well, yes. And the Obama administration, of course, as you know, when Mr. Obama was running for president originally, he was asked, well, did you inhale, you know, ha-ha, the old Clinton joke? And he said something most refreshing, anything in the subject I'd heard. He said, yes, I thought that was the whole idea. 
we were really expecting something less harmful, even positive from Mr. Obama. Complete disappointment. You know, he now has trained the guns of the DEA, of the federal government, on medical marijuana dispensaries. Even though his own attorney general, ostensibly at his own direction, uh, Attorney General Holder, issued that memorandum saying as long as medical marijuana dispensaries are in compliance with local and state law, we're going to leave them alone. Well, I was in Oakland, California about two weeks ago because they were being threatened to be closed down by the DEA. Uh, They're the largest medical marijuana dispensary in Oakland. They're doing everything by the book. They're working hand-in-hand with the city government. They've reduced a great deal of illegal marijuana selling around there, and they're paying their taxes. They paid millions of taxes to the the local government, and now they are being closed down. But But there's no real straightforwardness in that because they're not arresting them and charging them and letting them have a jury of their peers. They're actually going through the landlord. That they they issued these letters to the landlord saying, "Oh, you are you are leasing to people violating federal law. Unless you don't lease it to them, we're going to take away. We're going to forfeit your property." I think that's pretty despicable. It's underhanded. If you're going to do that and take those positions, give them a jury of their peers. But uh, what the government is doing now, I don't know why they're doing it. I don't know what the political benefit is. The people are outraged. The, the, the city governments are outraged. But uh, this is what's happening. And, again, unless Governor Johnson is an elected president, certainly Mr. Romney's going to be as bad as Mr. Obama. It's going to be hopeless. Of course, and I'm in Oregon right this minute, and we are endorsing the Oregon Initiative to treat marijuana like wine or, or like alcohol. We've also endorsed the one in Washington to do the same thing, the one in Colorado to do the same thing. Obama and Romney are on the other side. Again, if you want medical marijuana to, to dispensaries to survive, the only hope is to vote for Governor Gary Johnson. Do you think that uh, big pharmaceutical companies might look at med- medical marijuana as a competition? Well, I don't think there's much question. Uh, you know, you cannot patent a plant, and it's just that. It's just a plant. And so the pharmaceutical companies can't make any money on it. However... Talk about some more hypocrisy. Um, Marinol is a synthetic marijuana, a synthetic THC, the active ingredient. They can patent that. So so Marinol is a Schedule II drug, which means it can be prescribed. It has medicinal value. However, marijuana, which is the genuine article, no, it's a Schedule I drug, and it has no medicinal value. You know why? Well, it's money. You know, you just, the pharmaceutical companies can make money on that, so they use their leverage to get that uh, being able to be prescribed. Uh, I was actually in the offices of two sitting congressmen in Orange County, this was several years ago, one-on-one, and each one of them brought it up themselves. They knew my position on drug policy, and they said, where's the effect, Jim? You have to understand, most people in Washington realize the war on drugs is not winnable, but it's eminently fundable, and they're addicted to the drug war funding. That's what the problem is, Kenneth. It's all money. And it's amazing that there's a partnership today of the good guys and the bad guys. They're both making out very, very well economically. Obviously, the big-time drug sellers are making millions, hundreds of millions of dollars a year tax-free. And the law enforcement groups are also making lots of extra money in their budgets. Their fiefdoms are getting larger. Their power is getting greater. Their funding is getting more substantial. And they're, they're winning to the degree that 
the federal government literally now is bribing the local state, local city governments to continue to fight the war on drugs. They're giving them money, but they're saying you can only use this money to fight the war on drugs. So they're perpetuating it that way. I just think it's despicable. Well, that brings up another point. Um, you know, people talk about the prison industrial complex, and certainly uh, prisons are making a lot of money on this war on drugs, too. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about the prisons and the prison industrial complex. Well, indeed. In fact, uh, I have come up with six groups that are winning with regard to the war on drugs. Uh, the first we just mentioned, the illegal dealers. They're, they're making a killing tax-free. Second is basically juvenile gangs. That are their biggest source of funding for juvenile gangs is what? The sale of illegal drugs. Now, the third group is the politicians that are talking tough and getting elected and reelected by doing that, not talking smart, just tough. The fourth are then, like you're saying, it's the private sector that makes money because of increased crime. Who might that be? Certainly the people that build prisons, people that staff prisons. Uh, pretty much every state is just like the state of California. The strongest political lobby group in the state of California is what? The Prison Guards Union. You know, and, and they're voting for mandatory minimum sentences and three strikes and all that stuff to put more people in prison. I think that's obscene, but at any rate, they're coming out ahead. Uh, the fifth group uh, really are those who are terrorists of the world. Uh, that, that uh, again, the primary source of funding all around the world is uh, the sale of illegal drugs. I call drug prohibition the golden goose of terrorism. So these are things you cannot simply avoid. Money is driving this bus, Kenneth, and you do not look to the government to change it. You do not look to the government to change that lead because they're making too much money at it. It's up to us. It's up to our listeners. It's up to people. And again, the strongest thing you can do for this and so many other issues is to vote for Governor Gary Johnson. He is a man of courage. He is a man of insight. While he was governor of New Mexico, 1999, he held a press conference, says, I have conducted an audit throughout this. The war on drugs is not working. It's got to be changed. Now, look, he had no political constituency. He wasn't going to get any political benefit. In fact, it was the reverse. But he looked at it. He understood it. He had the courage to stand up and say, no, for the good of the people of the state of New Mexico, we've got to change this. He'll do the same thing for the United States of America both on this issue and every other issue you can think about. Uh, you mentioned a little bit ago property forfeiture laws that they were uh, invoking against uh, the landlords of the medical marijuana dispensaries. Aren't these laws uh, subject to a lot of abuse? They have been abused enormously. Uh, you mentioned my book, Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, A Judicial Indictment of the War on Drugs, probably the longest book title I've ever heard of. Get through the title, though, you know where I'm going. Uh, yes, there have been enormous abuses, such that it's turned our whole system of justice on its ear. Uh, if, if someone comes up to you and they forfeit your ranch, they forfeit your house, they forfeit your car, sometimes they just go up to people and they just take their wallets and say, you know, oh, look, oh, you have $80 in here. Well, you must have made this by selling drugs. These are more down-and-out type people. They just take the money. And, and just leave it. Nothing happens. You're required then to file in court to get the money back. It's your burden to show the money was not procured because of selling drugs. That is exactly the reverse 
of everything else. The burden should be on the government to show it was. No, in this case, the burden is on the individual to show that it was not. And, of course, it costs some money to, to get an attorney and do all of this. They're not going to do that for $80. It's just institutional corruption, Kenneth. It's got to stop. Yeah, that's a total violation of the principle of innocent until proven guilty. Truly. Truly, it, it really is. It's been modified to some degree, but uh, but not really. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the real irony of it is that you go to a city manager, the police chief goes to the city manager, and they say, well, you know, we need a new undercover car. They say, well, that's all right. Just go out and forfeit one. Just go and grab one. And then, again, the irony comes when the police chief goes to the city council for the budget for next year, and the city council member, this happens all the time, says, well, chief, you know, you had a pretty good year forfeiting property last year. You know, you got a quarter of a million dollars. Now, I know you can do better next year, so we're going to reduce your budget by $300,000 because we know that you can bring in that source of revenue. So even then, the police are under this pressure. They're under behind the eight ball with regards to their normal financing, and they look to do exactly that. In fact, in Orange County, where I'm from, I heard several police officers say that the standing instructions were that if you happen to be following some guy and he has a sack of drugs in one hand and a sack of money in the other, and then he gives the one sack to somebody else and they walk in different directions, follow the money. Let the drugs go. Why? Well, you follow the drugs and get them. Now you have an environmental problem on your hands. You've got to protect it. It can be abused. It costs you money. But if you follow the money, you get to share in part of the proceeds. So, you know, we really don't care about the drugs so much or them going to children or elsewhere. We're just in it for money. Get it. It's not working. Just like alcohol prohibition didn't work, it wasn't the fault of law enforcement. Blaming law enforcement for the failure of drug prohibition is kind of like blaming Elliot Ness for the failure of alcohol prohibition. It's not their fault. They're doing a good job. The fault is the system. It's a systemic problem and it's got to be changed. Now, when we talk about prisons, um, there's a move, well, there's been quite a few private prisons uh, created in the United States in recent years instead of being state prisons or federal prisons. Uh, is this something that can lead to abuses? Well, I suppose so, but I, I have no problem with, with private prisons. I think they're better run. They cost less. But the inmates are better taken care of. There's more education. Uh, they focus on keeping things quiet, which means you keep people content, etc. As long as the private prisons don't control how many people come in there uh, and how long they stay, that should be done publicly. But otherwise, I think private prisons actually work pretty well. Uh, yes, they can be abused because then they start lobbying. But of course, who are you going to have lobby? Either the private prisons or the prison guards unions. You know, you just have to be protected from that. But by and large, I think private prisons work better than public ones. Well, we did have a problem that was reported in a New York Times article a while back, six months ago or something. Uh, there was a judge who was a major investor in a private prison who kept giving everybody <laughs> maximum sentences because he was making oh, maximum God. profits. Yeah. yeah, okay, that's called a conflict of interest, and that judge should, should have his ticket pulled. You know, you can come up with abuses any time, I suppose. Judges are supposed to disclose those things, and if you don't disclose them, uh, you're gone. And, and that's that's just disgusting. But, I mean, you you can have those problems anywhere. Uh, have you been following uh, what's going on with decriminalization in Portugal? That's an excellent question. In fact, 
let's just take a moment here and have a show of hands of how many people are listening to us are aware of what has happened in Portugal for the last 10 or 11 years. And uh, I don't see many hands. You know, my goodness, Portugal in the year 2000 recognized that it had the biggest drug problem of any country in the European Union. And they did something really intelligent. They appointed a neutral commission of non-political experts. And they told the commission, go out in the country, figure out what's going on, come back with some recommendations and reports. And they did. About a year later, they came back and said, well, we have two big problems in Portugal. The first is that the people that are the problem users are afraid of their own government. You know, they're not going to bring their problems to the government. Why? Because if we, they do, we're going to get punished. So they take them underground. And secondly, the government was spending so much money on the investigation, prosecution, and incarceration of nonviolent drug abusers, they didn't have any money left for treatment. So as you know, Kenneth, in the year 2001, Portugal decriminalized all drugs. What does that mean? Well, decriminalized means that it's still illegal to buy, use, possess, sell any of the drugs. But as long as people stay within very well-known guidelines, the police are instructed to turn the other way and not arrest them. So what has happened? Well, 10 years later, the Cato Institute issued a report saying that problem drug usage has gone down by 50% countrywide. Why? exactly what the commission was saying. Now if a police officer sees someone that's using in possession, etc., they're given a citation, but not to come see me as a judge, but to go see some health care professionals. And so then the people will sit down, the board, the health care board will say, you know, Charlie, what much are you using? What can we do to help you? That sort of thing. And then they start working up this relationship with the medical community. Uh, yes, they could be sanctioned by some fines and stuff. It almost never comes to that. That has resulted in 50% reduction in drug problem usage. As far as the general usage concerned countrywide, it remained the same. Now, we have all of our drug drugstores from time immemorial saying, oh, if we were to change our system, everybody would use these drugs. We'd become a nation of drug zombies. That's not only insulting, you know, it's just downright silly, and it did not happen in Portugal. The final thing they found was really encouraging because young people – stopped going down this path in large numbers. Why? Well, we all know the, the teenage mind. Why should I use drugs and go see a doctor? That's no fun. It takes the glamour out of it. So it's really been successful, and it's spreading around in the other European Union countries as well. Well, it's also pulled the profit motive out of it. You know, if you're, if you're selling drugs, you can start by giving away some free samples, and when people start liking them, then you can start well, selling them. That's, that's certainly true. Actually, the Portugal system doesn't talk about the distribution, although the police pretty much turn their, turn their heads away from that, too. They are now talking about actually covering distribution and going to a regulated distribution system, which I really believe we should do in our country, certainly with regard to marijuana. And again, the Governor Johnson, Judge Jim Gray campaign has endorsed the initiatives in Oregon, Washington, and Colorado that would do just that treat marijuana like alcohol, and lots of harmful things just stop happening, and even some beneficial things do happen. What do you think of the federal ban on needle exchange funding? Um, it was lifted for a little while, and then it got put back on. It's outrageous. All of the studies kind of show that needle exchange programs, which, by the way, are a very fundamental medical address, that someone exchanged a dirty needle for a clean one, no money changes hands, no questions are asked, period. Uh, 
all of the studies show it does not increase drug usage at all. It doesn't decrease it either. It's neutral, but it reduces the incidence of blood-borne diseases like AIDS and hepatitis and the rest by 50%. 50%. It's a crime not to have needle exchange programs anywhere where they would be useful. And I, I, after explaining this to people, I don't care who they are, be it the young Republicans of Orange County or the ACLU, you ask them, can you think of any legitimate reason why we should not have needle exchange programs in every town or city in our country where there's a need? Now, in Holland, where they have a program of crime of harm reduction, they say, you know, needle exchange programs work. Where should we have them? Well, they should be user-friendly so that, you know, if you have all these regulations and push people away, that doesn't work. It should be open 24 hours a day. should be safe and lit. Okay. Where have they decided to have their needle exchange programs? In the, in the police stations. makes perfect sense. They're to protect and serve our people. It's open. It's friendly. People can come in and do that. They have reduced their incidence of AIDS, et cetera, accordingly. It's something we should simply do. The last thing, of course, is, oh, we don't want to do that. It sends the wrong message to our children. Well, really? You know, wait a minute. Right now the message is just go ahead and die. I mean, we know how to save you, but you fail our drug morality test, so we're going to let you die. I mean, that's not it. And no child is going to start injecting in drugs so they, too, can be a part of a needle exchange program someday. Our kids are smarter than that. There is no reason at all why this should not be done except this adverse morality that people say that, well, if you just fail our drug morality test, uh, you can die of AIDS. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I volunteered uh, in needle exchange for about a year. Uh, well, that's how I studied harm reduction. It was a great education for me, but it's just it's shameful that the uh, almost everything is done in the United States just by volunteers or by private funding. There's no government funding for it at all. Well, that's right, and there have been government prosecutions. To my knowledge, Kenneth, and by the way, thank you for those for those that work that you do, but to my knowledge, no one has ever been successfully prosecuted for needle exchange programs, that the jury has simply understood and refused to convict. Good for our juries. Well, let's move on to another question. Um, how about the Bill of Rights? Ha has the war on drugs hurt the Bill of Rights? Oh, goodness. Uh, you must have seen the chapter I have in my book called The Erosion of Civil Liberties. And actually, there was a new edition of the book, the second edition that came out earlier this year. The subheading of that is, Where's Paul Revere? Why is no one spreading the alarm? Because when you lose your liberties and your rights to the government, you almost never get them back. And in that chapter, I, I cite, actually, the year I graduated from law school, arbitrarily said it, that 1971, and I cite what our protections were, according to the Supreme Court, up to that time, and then citing only United States Supreme Court drug cases show how the protections of the Fourth Amendment, Fifth, Sixth, First, have all been reduced expressly because of the war on drugs. And I ask people when I go out talking to Rotary Clubs or political groups, religious, whatever, say, you know, how many of you people feel that we in our country are in better shape today than we were five years ago regarding this critical issue of drug use and abuse and all the crime and misery that goes with it? Nobody raises their hands. We all know we're not in better shape. Well, look, we've lost all of our civil liberties that we'll never get back, and still we're not making progress with regard to the, the whole war on drugs. It's time to repeal drug prohibition and stop this hemorrhaging of our civil liberties. 
Well, I absolutely think people just have the right to put anything into their bodies they want to, whether it's strychnine, alcohol, heroin, sugar, whatever. It's your choice. Well, it's cer- certainly as an adult, and I fully agree with you to the degree, and I am a libertarian and I'm proud of it, but I think everyone should understand that the government has as much right to tell me as an adult what I can put into my body as it does what I put into my mind. You know, it's none of their business unless if I start driving under the influence or beating up my spouse or hitting somebody over the head with a pool cue, that's different. So the whole criminal justice system is really good at and set up to address people's actions, what they do. It's not at all set up to address what people put into their bodies, and rightfully so. Well, absolutely. I mean, if somebody drives 100 miles an hour uh, through a school zone, that's just as bad as driving, uh, you know, drunk out of their mind. Um, but that's that's a problem of bad behavior. It's not a problem of ingesting a substance because people can decide, well, I'm going to drink at home and not leave the house. Well, you know, I or you tonight could go home and drink 12 martinis if we wanted to. Uh, not a smart thing to do, certainly not a healthy thing to do, but not a violation of law, nor should it be unless, again, you drive under the influence, etc. So why instead shouldn't be able to have people come home and take a sedative or take, smoke some marijuana or whatever? You know, again, if they're having medical problems, bring them closer to medical professionals that can help them. But we clearly have a highly addictive, sometimes dangerous substance for the harm for the user, and it's called tobacco, you know, nicotine. We lose somewhere in the order of 500 to 500,000 people every year in our country alone because they themselves smoke cigarettes. Now, look, you, if that's the case, then let's make cigarettes illegal. Well, boy, would that be a smart thing. Then we bring Al Capone and the Mexican drug cartels into the cigarette distribution business. But we're smarter than that. We don't do that, but we're reducing cigarette usage enormously. By what? By honest education, by regulation, social mores, the use of cigarettes is coming down, including by children. That's what we should do with regard to these other matters as well. You know, I'm flying around the country now in this campaign as vice president of the Libertarian Party with Governor Gary Johnson, and I remember vividly where it used to be that people could smoke on airplanes. Holy smokes, what a thing to say. But, but you know, this was impossible. So sometimes, you know, I would sit in the front of the plane, and you could only smoke from rows, you know, 19 back or something, as if that the smoke wasn't going to come forward to row 18 and forward. It was awful, but you can control that. We do now. We have non-smoking areas, and it's working, not by making cigarettes illegal, but by enforcing regulations. That's what we should do with these other drugs as well. Well, it's been studied by quite a few scholars that the the two most dangerous drugs are almost always considered nicotine. Well, not nicotine, tobacco and alcohol. Nicotine itself is not so bad, it's but in the form of tobacco and cigarettes particularly it's very bad. But you know, lots of scholars have come up with these studies, but those are the two legal drugs in the US. Well, that's uh, right. You know, I think that um all illegal drugs combined uh, cause deaths uh, somewhere around the same number as aspirin in our society. And honestly, too, Kenneth, heroin will not kill people. Uh, it is not life-threatening. I don't say this very often, but I think you have a sophisticated listenership. It's the problem with heroin is the unknown strength and the unknown quality. That's the thing that, that really causes problems. 
And most things can be addressed. You know, it's the same thing with regard to any other substance. As long as the quality is insured and you know what the strength is, then the, the problems start really being reduced. So those are problems today that, you know, if somebody is addicted to heroin or using heroin can take exactly the same amount as they did yesterday, but unbeknownst to them it can be three or four times stronger, and they die. And those are problems that we really should address. That's what's happened in Switzerland, like I said. They've had no overdoses. Then nobody has died of AIDS in Switzerland. And the same thing would happen here. Uh, and they would support themselves, support their families. In, in Switzerland with that program, employment went up by 50%. People starting to support themselves, support their families, pay their taxes. You know, what's not to like? So let's stop demonizing people that use these drugs and, and treat them as human beings. They are, by the way, and uh, they will respond. Things will get better. And by the way, drive a whole lot of really bad thugs out of business. <laughs> that too. Um, you know, the founder of John Hopkins uh, University, or I think the medical school, was a morphine addict uh, the whole time that he was working there. He was a lifelong morphine addict. Um, it didn't stop him from being a, a great doctor and a founder of medical school. In fact, he was a surgeon, and nobody knew that he was a lifelong morphine addict until the very end of his life. You know, these people, first of all, they are human. And, and again, I don't, I don't spread this around much, but, but if you are actually using morphine or heroin, which is pretty much the same thing, uh, you're not restricted regarding driving vehicles. You can drive heavy equipment. There's no problem, just like him being a surgeon. It's when you're coming down. It's when you're going through withdrawal. Those things cause problems. So by no means am I recommending that people do this. But if they are, putting them in jail is, first of all, the most expensive thing we can do, and also probably the stupidest. Uh, it's the same thing with people that have mental disabilities. You know, many of them, Kenneth, they self-medicate. Well, with what? Methamphetamines, cocaine, whatever. And then, of course, we put them in jail. Well, that's the worst thing you can do for these mentally fragile people. The harm we are causing them is enormous, and again, we're spending all this money on it. We don't have the money anymore. Let's do what works. There are probably, in California alone, 10 to 20,000 people that are in state prison that simply shouldn't be there, simply should not be there for a variety of reasons. I mean, some of them were, were geriatrics that they couldn't do, hurt anybody if they wanted to. They don't even have the strength to throw their walker at anybody. You know, it's, it's stupid. A lot of nonviolent drug offenders. They shouldn't be there. But we should take away those financial incentives because you might as well take out a billboard in the inner city or anywhere else. Hey, you want to make some money? You'll never make as much money in doing anything as you can by selling illegal drugs. And if you don't think our children are listening to that, you're crazy. So we're ruining people's lives. It's the system. It is the policy of drug prohibition, once again, the biggest failed policy in the history of our country, second only to slavery. And around the world, we have what we call the Single Convention Treaty out of the United Nations, which gets all the signatories to agree that they're not going to treat drugs in any way other than criminally. Well, come on. As soon as the United States backs off that, the world will heave a sigh of relief. Why should Portugal, why should Uruguay, which, by the way, the government is now talking about selling marijuana and cocaine itself, why should not Chile or or Nicaragua, or wherever, why shouldn't they decide how best to treat their issue domestically? Why should we intrude and, and govern what they do? 
let's let's get out of this business. We will decide what's best for our for our country. In fact, we'll allow each state to decide how best to, to treat these things. The federal government does not have all the answers. Is that a surprise? Let the state of New, New Jersey or Arkansas or California decide how best to treat its people, just like we did when we finally repealed alcohol prohibition. And if we can go talking about this forever, it just get, it gets me so upset because you see this from the bench. I was on the bench for 25 years in Orange County, California, in my own courtroom, where we're churning low-level drug offenders through the system for no good purpose. We are arresting, convicting, incarcerating, even heavy-dealing people, sending them to prison for decades. Does that mean that heroin or cocaine or marijuana no longer is available in that town? No. It's just an employment opportunity for somebody else. So let's come off it, realize this is a failed policy, change it, go to harm reduction, which does work, and hold people accountable for their actions, which also works. That's where we will eventually go, and within a year and a half after we finally go there, Everybody in the country will look back and be aghast that we could have perpetuated such a failed system for so long. Yeah, all the money that we're spending now on drug prohibition, we could uh, instead be spending to create other opportunities for people instead of having them become, you know, drug sellers, which for lots of people that's that's their best option. They don't have a really good option. Otherwise, we could create other options for them instead. Well, you're certainly right. In fact, what we're doing today is rendering people unemployable. You know, you put them in jail for a while, you put them in prison for a while, then they get out and they want to they have a better life and they don't want to do this, but they can't get a job because they're a felon. And, you know, what happens then? They didn't get any drug treatment when they were in jail or prison, so they're still more or less addicted to these drugs. They get depressed. Okay, what does a heroin addict do when he gets depressed? He uses heroin. He goes out and he starts selling heroin because he can't support himself or his family, and he gets back in prison. Now, I went through Norco State Prison, which is in Riverside County in California, and they have an 85% recidivism rate, most of whom were involved with addictions to drugs. They get no treatment when they're in drugs, in prison, and then when they're released, they have no chance, just like we said Within a year, they're back in prison, 85% of them. You know, it's hopeless. It doesn't have to be that way. If we would just rely on what works, we would be so much better off. And what works? Well, education, like we said, treatment and prevention. You know, it works pretty well for our cars and our airplanes. It works for our bodies. works in this area, too. Then, of course, honest incentives to turn, take away all the profit-making of this stuff. And the last thing, of course, is the cries out individual responsibility, hold people accountable for what they do. This is Governor Gary Johnson, up, down, and sideways. It's me. I'm a judge. I'm in the responsibility business. You want to put in something that works, just like Governor Johnson did in the state of New Mexico. He finally left the state with a billion-dollar surplus, created more jobs than any other governor in the country at the time by reducing government regulations, streamlining them, getting government out of the way, Yes, we need government, but we need less government. The federal government today is obese, and it needs to be trimmed down. With regard to the intrusion, the expense, the, the, uh, the getting in the way of all of these regulations, big government, Kenneth, is really, really good at one thing, and that is increasing the size and the power and the expense of big government. It's got to stop. We've got to reduce this and go back to what made us great, 
which again is individualism, common sense, and, and, and carrying out things of responsibility. Yes, we'll have a safety net. I was in the Peace Corps. I care about people. So does Governor Johnson. We'll have a safety net, but the government will be the last resort instead of the first resort. We'll go back to having the, the, uh, the incentives to live a better life, get a better life for yourself and your children, and we will again retrieve that greatness that we used to have and is slipping away from us. You can go with Democrats. You can go with Republicans. They put us into war. They put us into all of this budget deficit problems and everything else. We will put in a coalition government, libertarians, of course, and independents, but also highly placed in the Governor Gary Johnson administration. We'll be, liber- we'll be Republicans and Democrats, too, on merit, as long as they go with our approach of financial responsibility and social tolerance. And then when the, one of those political parties gives us some trouble, we'll have highly placed people in administration go out, talk with their colleagues, and say, wait a minute, you know, this is a good idea. Embrace it. Get on board. It's good for the country. And we will give out credit for any ever people have good ideas, embrace good ideas. The Republicans and Democrats can't do that. You can reelect Mr. Obama. You can elect Mr. Romney. They're going to have that so whole bipolar politics between the Republicans and Democrats that are going on today. So be libertarian with us this election. Get us in the debates. That's what we ask. You get called by a polling organization say, I support Governor Gary Johnson. We will merit your vote in November. And then what's going to happen is we are going to regain that prosperity that we once had, that equal opportunity that we all thrive in, and liberty. It's not going to happen otherwise with the Republicans or Democrats. If you think that it's worked in the last 5, 10, 20 years under the Republicans and Democrats, choose your poison vote, whichever one you want. But if you don't think it's helped us, Governor Gary Johnson is the only place to go. Be libertarian with us in this election. If it doesn't work for some reason or another, you can always vote back politics as usual. It's exciting. Well, I want to thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Judge Jim Gray. Well, thank you, Kenneth. Look forward to doing it again. And thanks for the work you're doing. And it's, a, it's always fun to be with you. Thank you. Everybody, uh, come back next week. We're going to have a show in the afternoon because our guest is coming from London. It's Alexandra Stein, author of Inside Out, who is going to tell about her history with a Minneapolis political cult, how she got involved and how she got out. And uh, join us then. Everyone, good night. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.